0: Today's scripture reading, it comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And today's sermon title is Gospel Cultural Renewal. Again, today's scripture reading, it comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And today's sermon title is Gospel Cultural Renewal. And so this is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And we are wrapping up our Sunday morning teaching series today on the vision of the church. It's a series where we've been looking at some of the core values of our church and just to remind you where we are in this series for the last two weeks we've been looking at how we are a gospel spreading church the reality that once you meet jesus personally he so utterly transforms your experience of life that you just naturally want others to have that same experience and so you share your experience with them and then you invite them to see if they'd like to know this god too Two weeks ago, we looked at this a little more locally on what it looks like that God has sovereignly put us in the places he's put us, in our neighborhoods, in our careers, in our schools, for the sake of spreading his gospel. Last week, Michael O. helped us think more globally, gave us the big picture of what the church is doing in the world, like in some sense only Michael can, and how we can be involved in that. And I liked how he really focused us on the, how the church has a unique role in this world, that the church is the only group of people who care about the glory of God on earth. Church is the only group of people who want to see God's glory themselves and who care that other people see it as well. And that means that gospel spreading is just now part of our DNA as God's people. Jesus showed us what the Father is like, and now we want other people to see that as well today we're going to wrap up by looking at one of the ways that god's glory is seen and that is through gospel cultural renewal that we as god's people enter into the systems into the structures of our society and we do that with the knowledge of the gospel but also the power of the gospel and we want to do that in order to see those systems and structures more closely aligned with god's original intention For how we should live, which would what? Then display God's glory. And we should just acknowledge up front that this is really hard. It's hard because the larger world is not interested in the glory of God. The larger world does not want what God loves and values because it loves and values something else. And so the world rejects God, rejects his claim on our lives, rejects his claim on how we are to live. That's what Jesus means in John chapter 15 when he tells his disciples that the world hates him and because the disciples love him, then they should expect the world to hate them as well. That's the reality of life on a fallen planet. But here's part of the glory of God. God does not hate the world in return. Instead, Jesus tells us, John chapter 3, that God loves the world, loves it so much that he gave his only son for it that God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. And it's that Son who now sends you and me with the same mission in mind. And so as God's people, we don't hate the world. We don't hate the people and the cultural systems that oppose God and his desires. We don't hate the world because God doesn't hate it. But we also don't accept the world the way it is because God doesn't. Instead, we move toward the world like God has moved toward us in a way that tries to impact the larger world for his sake so that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, so that life on earth would a little bit more closely reflect life in heaven. Now, if we're going to live out this very difficult tension, we're going to need to be clear on three things, three things we'll look at today. First, we need to see the condition of the world for what it really is Second We need to see God's remedy For the world's condition And then third We need to see that there are some dangers To that remedy So three things for today The condition of this world The remedy for the world And the danger to that remedy Let's dive in When Jesus tells his disciples In our passage today Verse 13 That they are salt Salt and verse 14, that they are light, Jesus is making an assumption. He's assuming that this world does not have something that it needs. He's assuming that there's a lack in this world that the world cannot satisfy on its own, but instead that the world has to have something added to it. It needs to have salt and light. Now what's Jesus trying to convey with these two metaphors? salt in this context is a preservative you have to remember this is a world at that time without refrigeration and salt was used to keep food from rotting so when jesus says to his disciples you are the salt of the earth he's telling them you're the preservative of the earth you are here to keep it from rotting and spoiling do you hear his assumption jesus believes that on its own this world is decaying. And not the gentle kind of decay that comes from running down and from losing energy, but there's a corruption that comes from inside the world. There's a spoiling that it can't stop. He's talking about the kind of decay that happens if you leave meat out on the counter for about a week. And from Jesus' perspective then, at the core of this world is this internal kind of corrosive rot. And it's a rot that needs a preservative added to it so that it doesn't completely destroy itself. It needs the salt of his disciples. And it also needs the light of his disciples. Again, notice his assumption here. By calling his disciples the light of the world, he's saying that the world is not light, that it's dark, and that it has no light of its own. He's saying light does not come out from within the world, but has to be introduced to the world from outside of the world. Now clearly he's not talking here about physical light any more than he was talking about physical rot. But both of these metaphors are trying to contrast two spiritual realities. The one that is already present here in the world, the reality that this world is rotting away in the dark, And the reality that his disciples are part of. The one that has the resources to preserve and to enlighten this otherwise dark, rotting world. So in this sense, then, light has a number of different dimensions. Is it knowledge? Sure. Understanding? Yes. Is it more character, goodness, charity, mercy? Yes, yes, and yes. Is it justice, holiness, righteousness? Again, yes, for all of those, because it's all of the things that reflect God and his original intention for this world. This light is everything that this world needs now that it's been corrupted and darkened by evil. Now let me give a little caveat. Please hear this. Jesus is not saying that without God, people are as fully and deeply wicked as they could be. He's also not saying that people can't do anything to learn about this world or to change this world. He's not saying that we can't explore creation, that we can't build cities, that we can't develop art and literature, invest in careers that help people like medicine, engineering, social work. Jesus is not denying any of that. Instead, when he assumes that the world is rotting and dark, he means two things. He means, first, that there are no resources within this world that have the power to stop the corroding power of sin. That this world does not have salt or light of its own. And so even when we are able to see how bad our societal problems can be, we don't have the tools in ourselves to deal with those problems once and for all so that as we tackle some of these, they just never reappear. We don't have the tools to turn rottenness into health, if you run with this metaphor. We don't have the tools to turn darkness into light. It's not within us. We don't have, first, what we need to fix the problems of this world. Second, we don't aim the tools that we do have in a healthy direction. The values and the goals that this world holds do not move us toward God's values and goals. And so we don't use the tools that we have, the abilities God's given us, we don't use them to build a society where God's will in heaven is then lived out on the earth. And so that means there's nothing within the world, then, that will keep humanity from decaying. And there's nothing within humanity that can light our way back to God. Nothing that can guide cities, art and literature, medicine, engineering, social work, so that they honor God first and foremost, and they honor his purposes. Jesus is saying that without the salt and the light that he provides, those things will always be distorted, that they'll always end up with rot and darkness in some way. Let me give an example. Maybe we can picture this a little bit better. Go back to Genesis 11, if you will, at the Tower of Babel. And there we have an account where we learn that people are extremely gifted, That even after the advent of sin into this world, they have not completely lost the image of God in which they were created. And so they can take charge of this world. They can rule over it, and they can build a city, they can build a society, and they can build a culture. But we also learn that because evil has entered into this world, that they don't use their gifts to carry out God's agenda, but they use their gifts for a different purpose. So you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you learn there that humanity was to be fruitful and multiply. That humanity was to spread out over the whole earth and fill it with what? With the knowledge and the glory of God. God's plan was that this world would be filled with countless images of himself, all living just like he does, reflecting what he's like, reflecting his glory everywhere you go so that it would be literally impossible not to see God wherever you were why we're supposed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill all the earth. But we're told in Genesis 11 that the human race rejected that calling. Instead, they said to each other, verse 4, Genesis 11, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. They're telling you there that they took the gifts that God gave them and misused them. Instead of spreading across the earth, they stayed in one place. Instead of being content to rule on earth, they decided to raise themselves up to heaven. Instead of making God's name great, they wanted to make a name for themselves. It's not that they had no gifts. It's not that they couldn't do anything with their gifts. It's that they misused their gifts. Because their internal compasses were dark and rotting. And so instead of pointing their gifts in a Godward direction, they pointed them in a God-hating, God-rejecting direction. In a direction that distorted the image of God by effectively keeping it from being seen. They didn't live for the glory of God, didn't use their lives to proclaim the goodness of God, and because of that, when you looked at them, when you looked at the society that they built, it was hard to see God on this earth because they made it hard. They were made in God's image. You were supposed to see him more clearly by what they did and didn't do, but when they used their lives in a way that God would not, in effect, they scrubbed him from the picture, erased his image. And that's what evil has been trying to do from the beginning. One way to think about history is to recognize that while God's intention has been to fill this earth with images of himself, there has been another intention at work at the same time. That the spiritual forces of evil have been intent on ruining that image in whatever way possible. And so I want to run through a very quick list of things that we often see as unrelated. And I want to do that so that we can see that there's an underlying theme to them that ties them all together. So follow along with me. What does murder do? It removes an image of God from the world. Makes it impossible to see that image. In the same way that unjust wars and genocide remove Images of God that should have been clearly seen, not removed. What does abortion do? It keeps an image of God from appearing in the world. What does euthanasia do? It removes an image of God from the world that God had for that time intended to have represent him. What does violence do? It damages an image of God. Inflicts external injuries that alter the appearance that God gave that person. It ruins the image that God gave them and it inflicts internal emotional injuries that distort how that person sees themselves as an image bearer. What does racism do? It debases the image of God found in an ethnic group. It says that one group does not reflect the glory of God as fully as another not as image-bearing. But it also destroys the image of God in a different way. God is one God in three persons, three persons who live in perfect harmony with each other, each honoring the others. And so when we promote one tribe as inherently more valuable than another, one ethnicity over another, one sex over another, one generation over another, one social class over another, when we do that, We don't reflect the image of God in community. Honoring and valuing each equally. But we destroy the corporate image of God. Just like bullying does. What does bullying do? It isolates people from their peers. Cuts them off from others in a way that no person in the Trinity is ever isolated from the other two. And again, by doing that we obscure the image of God. What does sex trafficking and pornography do? It demeans the image of God. Reduces an image bearer to a commodity. Just like so much of the advertising industry does. That turns a human being into a display rack to show off the glory of consumer goods. Rather than valuing that person for how they display the glory of God. Or think about how God tells us in Genesis 1.27 that he created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What's that mean? Anytime we obscure maleness and femaleness, by definition, we're obscuring the image of God. God tells us that there's a goodness to us being gendered. Because it reflects him in a way that one gender alone cannot. And it reflects him in a way that a non-gendered human being could not. That the gender that God built into your DNA, that you can never get away from, is something to celebrate, not reject. Related to that is the goodness of committing yourself to someone of the opposite gender in a marriage covenant. That that's also something to celebrate, Because again, it tells you something about God. It reflects Him. That's what Ephesians 5 says. That we now see how He covenants Himself with His people as we watch a man and a woman come together. Scripture is well aware of same-sex relationships. Very aware of people being uncomfortable in their own bodies. And God is sympathetic to people who struggle with their bodies and who struggle with His design for them. But God's sympathy moves him to restore people who struggle, not celebrate them when they distort his image in them. I could keep on going. These are just a couple ways that evil tries to remove the image of God in this world. And I wanted to give you that list because we often see these as separate, discrete, disconnected societal issues. But when you look at the end result of each of them, you realize they share a common theme. And that is to distort and ruin, eliminate any sense of the presence of God, the image of God on this earth. What does that mean? If you feel the wrongness of one of these, good. <laughs> you should. And you also need to feel the same wrongness for all the others because they're all part of the same package. When Jesus says that this world is rotting and in darkness, he means that without outside help, you can expect that list. That is what humanity will produce. And you can expect that list to grow because what the human race will produce on its own without salt and light is the loss of the image of God. Now that is sobering and unpopular. This world does not want to hear that the best it can do is rod away while stumbling around the darkness. You may not like hearing that either. I know there's still something inside of me that bristles when I hear this. Something that wants to argue with Jesus. <laughs> something that wants to say, wait, wait a minute, Lord, I mean, here, over here, we can fix this, right? We can pour money and education into this problem, and we can straighten out this social issue. We can bring light into it. We can keep it from rotting. We can do this without you, Jesus, right? This is part of why Jesus said the world hates him. Because he pulls back the civilized veneer that we work so hard to build. The veneer to cover over all of our societal ills. And he exposes the ugly reality underneath that we really don't want to hear. That's point one, the true nature of this world as Jesus sees it. Point two, the remedy for this world. Jesus does not look at the condition of this world, shrug his shoulders and say, there's nothing you can do about it, so don't even try. Instead, Jesus looks his disciples in the eye and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of this world you are the change agents of this world you are the ones who will carry the kingdom forward that's what he said to the disciples this ragtag group of guys each of whom have their own issues none of them have any formal training no one with any position of influence in society there's not a single influencer among them nobody in their right mind would have confused this group of guys with having what it takes to be world changers. You just wouldn't. They're not impressive to look at. And Jesus doesn't call them to be impressive. He just told them in the verses earlier in the Beatitudes that they're blessed if what? If they're poor, poor in spirit. That they're blessed if they mourn, blessed if they're humble. Blessed if they're merciful rather than assert their rights. Blessed if they're pure in heart, not out for what they can get for themselves. Blessed if they're peacemakers, not dividers. That they're blessed if they're insulted, persecuted, and defamed because of Christ. These are the kind of people, the unimpressive, that Jesus sets loose on this world to restore it. (laughs) To bring light and health into it and he does that because the kingdom of god does not under does not operate under the same principles as the kingdoms of this world doesn't move forward like they do instead jesus is saying in my kingdom it's not the strong who survive it's not the beautiful who are praised it's not the wealthy who are influential but in my kingdom it's the humble the merciful the peacemakers the ones who are obsessed with righteousness who just can't get enough of it these are the ones who are blessed these are the ones who have a saving influence on the world around them these are the ones who have the saving influence on the strong the beautiful the wealthy and the influential unimpressive disciples he says you are the ones who will change this world And I'm guessing, I don't know this, but I'm guessing that no one sitting there that day saw that coming. Not his disciples, certainly not the rest of the world. And yet, if you study history, that is exactly what happened. Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist. Rodney Stark, in a book called The Rise of Christianity, studied the social impact of Christian beliefs on society. So he looked at how Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, Shaped how Christians lived in such a way that was different from the people around them and how over time several hundred years how those beliefs and practices Having no official backing no official promotion How those beliefs and practices then permeated Roman society For instance Stark looks at how women were treated And shows that they were not treated as property not treated as sexual outlets within the Christian community but that they were accorded the respect and dignity God intended. And so he looks at how baby girls in the Christian community were not killed off when they were born, like they most often were in the larger society, but they were cherished in Christian homes. He looks at how young girls were not forced into marriage at an early age. How young widows were not forced into marriage if they didn't want to be remarried, like the state forced their citizens there are other authors like rebecca mclaughlin who've gone on to show that the norms within the early church started to filter out into the larger society started to influence how people thought about women how people thought about men or another instance stark looks at how christianity revitalized life in greco-roman cities how Christianity offered new norms and new connections, new social relationships that effect, that effectively dealt with urban problems. So he shows how Christians offered charity and hope to the homeless or to those in poverty. That Christian community gave newcomers to the city a community to attach to that ended up being safer for them. That it offered a sense of family to orphans and widows. That it gave a reason For people from different ethnicities to bond together instead of fight against each other. That Christianity dealt with epidemics, natural disasters, by rushing to help rather than running away. That Christians offered to nurse plague victims back to health instead of guarding themselves against getting sick. He shows that they lived out the gospel. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 8 9 this way, that though Jesus was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty, they, you, might become rich. And so these Christians, having experienced this Jesus entering their lives with health and riches that they didn't have, turned to their neighbors and gave their neighbors what they didn't have. Even if that meant that they might die trying to save their neighbors, because why? Jesus had died for them. And in these simple, daily kind of ways, they altered the society around them in ways that brought light and health into it. Now, that's on the physical side of cultural renewal. On the intellectual side, there are other authors like Tom Holland who have been pointing out that the philosophical underpinnings of a lot of the beliefs that we modern people cherish, a lot of those beliefs come out of Christianity that you don't find the basis for things like equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom and progress. You don't find the basis for those things in any secular or pagan understanding of the world, any secular or pagan society. It's not what the world used to believe. But you do find the basis, the the rationale for those things, that we hold on to so tightly you find that in christianity what's happening there christian values permeate society in such a way that they become the values that all of us just right now assume that that's right what's that mean it means that what jesus said to those 12 <laughs> ragtag guys worked out in practice that his people really are the salt and light of this world. Yes, we are not what we always should be. We do not always live out what we know. The church has been far too slow to understand and believe all that that God has said. We've compromised on what we know. We've been hypocritical far too often. All that's true. But what Jesus promised is even more true. That his church, which includes you and me, does impact this world for good because Jesus intended it to do that. That's true, and you don't always see that in a small, brief moment. These authors that I mentioned are taking the long view of history. You don't see this change of this magnitude quickly, but it takes time to seep into the culture around people. It takes hundreds of years It takes hundreds and thousands and millions and hundreds of millions of people quietly living out a different kind of life from the world around them. Living that out in such a way that over time, people from outside the church look in and say, I don't like everything you believe. But I can see that the community you're building cares better for people than the other communities I'm aware of. That's what it means, verse 14, to be a city set on a hill. You're noticeable. You stand out. Why? Because you're different. You're highly visible. You're this beacon of light that says to the people around you, this is what it means. This is what it looks like to be brought back into a relationship with the God who made you. Isn't this good? Aren't his ways good? Aren't they just and and beneficial? Isn't, Isn't this something that you would like for yourself? Don't you want a marriage that's a full partnership? Where mutual respect and love flow? Where each person is better because of the influence of the other than either would be on their own? Don't you want to raise children in this way? Not crushing them, not spoiling them. Raise them in a way so that you and other people will actually want to be around them not trying to live vicariously through them, not ignoring them, but enjoying and empowering them so that they take their place as productive members of society. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be with people who do meaningful things with their lives? Who are thoughtful and interesting, not just trying to amass as much as they can get. Thoughtful and interesting, but not full of themselves. People who willingly share their lives but who don't feel a need to remind everyone of how important they are. People who are big enough to be interested in other people. Don't you want to be part of a community that values differences, that can learn and grow from the differences rather than rip each other apart over them? Don't you want to be part of a community that works for the good of others, that cares about those who are not well off, that cares about those who can't defend themselves, a community that exists in part to make other people's lives better, especially those who can't make their own lives better. Don't don't you want to be part of that? That's what Jesus plans, that when you listen to him, when you become his disciple, when you buy into what he's offering, that you take the light and the health he gives you and you create something beautiful with it in a dark world that others can enjoy. Something that points beyond itself back to the God who's the source of all light and goodness. That's what this world has always needed. It's especially what our country needs now. And we do that in very simple ways like God's people always have. We, we commit ourselves to live according to what God has told us. Now, that's at the individual level, but there's a corporate dimension here as well. could say an awful lot about this. Not going to. But Jesus says this to a group of people, his disciples. He doesn't say this to individuals. So there's a corporate dimension to gospel cultural renewal corporate dimension where smaller groups of people come together because they share a burden for the same kinds of needs that they see in this world and so maybe a group comes together because they, they, they just really want to help refugees or another group has a heart for people who are homeless another one for unwed mothers another one who who want to foster unwanted children or or teach english as a second language so this smaller group comes together because they shame, share the same burden And they find each other. They come together to help relieve the problems of living in a dark, rotting world. Or a group comes together to understand better how do we live out our Christianity in our profession? How do we respond to what our profession demands of us? To the values it promotes, the things we have to do or say that that just don't quite seem to line up with christ and so maybe a group of teachers come together teachers who work in secular education to work out what does this look like personally i think that would be incredibly crucial at this time given the pressures that there are in education the little bit that i understand Or maybe pharmacists and other health professionals come together to think through the latest professional standards from a Christian perspective. What are the parts here that we can agree to? What are the parts where I'm not sure about this and we need to maybe push back? Or scientists and engineers, people in business and marketing, meet several times a year to hear how each other are handling the temptations to produce things that would make a ton of money but that would likely harm the image that God has built into people. Christian professionals who want to be salt and light in the occupations that God led them into, who want to see gospel cultural renewal take place in their small sphere of influence. That's point two, the remedy that Christ has for the condition of this world. It's you. You are the salt and you are the light of this world. Which means then, point three, we have to take Jesus' warning very seriously. That there is a very real possibility that you and I can live in such a way as to have absolutely no effect on the people around us. That verse 13, the salt can lose its taste. And once that happens, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt can lose its saltiness. You can live in such a way as to hide the light, put it under a basket, not let others see your good deeds. You can choose to live in such a way as to not impact the world around you, to not help preserve it, to not give light to it. How do do you do that? I've been reading through church history again, and I'm struck this time over and over and over by how many times... God's people veer away from him. Not that the whole church does, it doesn't. Jesus is amazingly faithful to his bride. He promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, and they haven't. Christianity has spread across the globe. It's still going strong in many places. Michael attested to that last week. But there are so many other times when parts of his church move away from Christ, Where they hold on to what he said less tightly. Where they move themselves away from what he's doing in the world. And then that branch of the church ends up withering. And as you read church history, you realize this doesn't happen once or twice. It happens over and over and over. And it doesn't happen with small groups of people. It doesn't happen with sects. Sometimes really large portions of the church. Portions that compromise the faith that add things to it or that subtract things from it that change what God has told us to believe. Portions of the church whose actions then follow what they believe who end up losing their saltiness and their light. Now, how does that happen? I'm seeing two things as I read. One is that the church is no longer content to be unimpressive Instead, she allies herself with the powers that be in a society. She gets tired of being insulted, persecuted, and lied about for the sake of Christ. And so in a desire for respect, for influence, for larger size, for greatness, for comfort, she moves herself toward the center of the cultural or the political power of the day. And in doing that, that means she adjusts her values the values of the power holders and in that moment she becomes just like the rotten darkness instead of standing out from it that's one way to lose your saltiness alliance with power the second way i think is even more deadly this is through theological innovation through letting ourselves slip into thinking that what god has given us in his word is nice, but it's not really all that we need for life and godliness. That sure, the gospel will get us to heaven, but to see real change in our lives or in the life of our society, we need to add in some other things as well. We need to be educated on the things that the people in our society believe. We need to be educated that love is love, that therapeutic categories make better sense out of daily life than the scriptures, that the most genuine, authentic you is who you and is who and what you think you are. That education alone is enough to change the human heart. That those things, those ideas are what have to form then how we think about and live with each other. Buy into that idea that God does not say enough to be helpful to modern people. Doesn't say enough to escape the rot and the darkness that we see all around us buy into the idea that we have to add things to what he has said to preserve this world. And what you'll end up doing is watering down the salt that he's given you. You'll water it down until it can't preserve anything anymore. Now that sounds obvious, right? But church history teaches you that we fall into that same trap over and over and over again. This trap of taking things from the larger world and mixing them into Christianity until that branch of the faith just withers away. We even find ways to justify doing this. In Christian academia, it's called plundering the Egyptians. That's a reference back to when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and he told them to ask their neighbors for gold and silver on their way out. And essentially that was payback for all of their years of slavery. And God said, in this way you will plunder the Egyptians. You will take their treasures and make them your own. And Christian academics take that account and argue, we should do that with all the treasures of the people around us including their intellectual riches. And so we will learn from them. We'll take their ideas and bring them into the church. We don't have to reinterpret them through the lens of the gospel. That's what we talked about week one of this series. We don't have to reinterpret them through the lens of the gospel. We'll just bring them into the church and marry them to the gospel. And it never occurs to anyone who makes this idea, this argument, that there might be a huge difference between taking a base metal and taking a philosophical idea. Huge difference between adding gold to your wallet and merging a philosophical idea into your faith. Never occurs to them to ask, what did the Israelites do with the gold they plundered? Oh, that's right, they... They made golden calves out of it and almost called down the wrath of God on their heads. Never occurs to them to realize that what the Israelites really took from the Egyptians were the philosophical ideas, were the values and thought patterns of idolatry, the philosophical underpinnings of idolatry, so that they later used the gold in the way that the Egyptians had taught them to use gold. As a way of making something to trust in other than God. The Israelites tried to use that God rejecting knowledge in a way to serve God that nearly got them killed. We can't make that same mistake at renewal. We can't just take from our society the one that's rotting in the darkness. We have to interpret everything that we hear, everything that we learn from the world around us. We have to see this all through the gospel. It's good to be challenged by what the world sees. But challenged what? To go back to God and ask him, how do you see this thing that my world has taught me to see? How do I learn to see it the way that you see it? It's only then that we will have salt and light to bring to our world the salt and light that it needs. but do that. Approach this world that way and it will cost you. Jesus promises, verse 11, you will be reviled, you'll be persecuted, you'll be lied about. You think, okay, uh, Lord, why? why? Why would you do that? Why would you throw us into the middle of rottenness and darkness to say and do things that will get us insulted, persecuted, and lied about? It's because God loves what he made. Keep reminding yourself of that. Christianity does not move you away from people. It moves you toward people. Because you know what it's like to have God move toward you. The ugliness of our world sickens our God. But it moves him with compassion in a way that our world does not move when it's sickened. God wants to preserve this world and bring light to it, even if that comes at a huge cost to himself. And so, yes, Jesus sends his disciples into the world knowing that they're going to be persecuted and mistreated. But he only sends us after God sent him. Remember, Jesus is the one who loves what he's made, who will not surrender it to decay and darkness. Jesus is the light that shines into the darkness, the light that makes the world aware that it is dark. And therefore, Jesus is the persecuted one. He's the one who is persecuted for your sake because he loves you. And so he preserved your life by what? By losing his own. He's the one who gave you light. How? At the cost of entering into the darkness of God's judgment, into the darkness of the tomb. How do we respond then? We don't try to pay him back. We don't say to ourselves, oh, you know what, Jesus was persecuted for me, so now I have to do things I don't really want to do because I'm in his debt. That is not the gospel. That's penance, that's payback. Trying to earn God's goodness. The gospel sounds different. It sounds more like this Jesus was persecuted for me. And now I'm no longer the rotting, benighted thing that I was. Now I'm transformed. I, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy. I'm able to see. I'm like He is. And because I'm like Him, I now love the things He loves and I do the things He does even if I get mistreated like he was. And so now I agree with him when he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Renewal, we need to recover an expectation that the larger world just plain won't like us. We have to stop living as though we can make this dark world happy with us that we can do enough things, say the right things, so that they think that we're the good guys. That's not our mission. Our mission is that when someone doesn't like us, it makes us that much more aware of how much they need what God is offering through us, of how much they need the salt and light that God has made us to be. Because you're really rotten, really blind, if you hate someone who wants something better for you. We need to learn how to think when we're insulted, persecuted, lied about, that that gives us greater incentive to be salt and light. Because if we refuse to give to others what we've been given, they'll rot even more as they grow brown in the darkness. So here's the reality that we leave with. Renewal, you will not be liked. And here's your marching orders. Be salt and light anyway. Why? Because God himself broke into your world to make you healthy, to give you light. And now you have what the world needs so that it doesn't destroy itself. Not because you're great and wonderful in yourself, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Lord God, you have an incredible plan from all eternity that we're just beginning to get on board with. Lord, your plan is not that we would live the American dream to the hilt. Your plan is to use your people to make a difference in this world in countless number of ways every single day. Lord, would you please impassion us by seeing who you are, by being taken with what you've done so that it then moves us into the lives of the people around us. Lord, do that for the good of the people around us. Lord, do that for our good, but do it most of all for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name.